Since the beginning of time, man has searched the earth for evidence of its past. But while some have looked for clues to the mystery, one man has found the way to bring the mystery back to life. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. And I spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve here on this private island. Science has defied evolution. Where do you get a hundred million year old dinosaur plot? Genetics has massive creations. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. And extinction <laughs> is a thing of the past. Welcome to Jurassic Park. None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. Hey, look at this. You see something? Dinosaurs and man. Two species separated by 65 million years of evolution. Just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea? You feel that? Everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined this week once again by my good buddy J. David Weeder. Hello, welcome back to me. I guess thank you for having me back is what I meant to say, but well, welcome back to me, and you're welcome for having <laughs> you back. Uh, today we are covering Jurassic Park, the 1993 Steven Spielberg version of the Michael Crichton novel, and. Uh, I've gotten the impression that you kind of like this movie. Oh, I was obsessed. Yes. You should have seen me 15 years old coming off a stint in the hospital because of some respiratory things. And Jurassic Park stuff was everywhere. I dived in. I loved this movie so much. Had you read the book? Yeah. When I was laid up before, in the hospital. Before you saw it? Yeah. I read it because it was, I was, like I said, laid up because of some respiratory issues. And I read it while I was in the hospital. So I read I, I, this while is, I was convalescing. This is one of the books that I read, you know, taking the train to and from Manhattan to go to work, being, you know, much older than you and all. Uh, <laughs> and I loved it. I loved the novel. I remember talking about it before before the movie was even in production. And I was saying it's a combination of the movies Westworld and Aliens. That was my description of it. Which is appropriate because Michael Crichton wrote and directed Westworld. Yes. <laughs> and and that was, like, I was aware of that, but I hadn't really been thinking about it when I came up with that comparison. Uh, and Westworld has always been one of my favorites, too. And anybody who's interested in hearing about that, we did cover it on this show uh, with uh, Bill Robinson and Andy Leyland. So when after after reading this book, I was enthralled by it and i was really really anticipating the movie uh i remember thanksgiving before it came out they were going to show a clip on tv i guess you know with the teaser trailer or whatever and i remember being out for dinner and then like trying to race home to get there in time to see whatever they were going to show and uh not quite making it because of thanksgiving traffic and being pissed which 
is not really my way of thinking of things now because now my preference is if I know I'm going to see it, I'd rather not see too much in advance. Yeah. But at the time, I really wanted to see what they, excuse me, what they were going to do with it. And uh, initially, when this first came out, uh, I was somewhat disappointed at first because of my anticipation from the book, and there were things in the movie that were different from the book, and more importantly, there were things in the movie that, or there were things in the book that didn't happen in the movie, Hmm. and I found myself disappointed, but over time, uh, I've kind of wiped my mind of some of the things in the book, and it has become an all-time favorite of mine. Yeah. But it did take a little time. At first, I actually have to admit I was actually disappointed the first time I saw it. Not that I thought it was terrible, but it just didn't live up to the expectations I had based upon the book. I walked out happy. I know that because there were there were some surprises. It kept me on my toes, and and one of the big pieces I was anticipating did not disappoint. But we'll, we'll get into the details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, the first time I saw it, a little disappointed. Since then, I only saw it in the movie theater once, but since home video came around, you know, I I owned it on VHS, and then I owned it on DVD, and then Blu-ray, so that that in and of itself should give you an idea of what I think (laughs) of it, Um, and and I've I've really enjoyed it, and now it's it's one of these movies, much like Harry Potter that we've talked about so much. That if it's on TV and I'm flipping through the channels, I just stop on it. It really doesn't matter where in the movie it is. At any point, I'll stop on it. And uh, I think, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit about how how Spielberg did the movie itself. And uh, I I think he made some really good choices in the way he put it together. So we'll talk about that. But first, I guess always it's worthwhile to get into the casting a little bit. Now, when I read a book... As a matter of just rule, I always, in my mind, picture different different faces, usually actors and actresses, but not necessarily, uh, as I'm reading the book, in the different roles. I don't know if you do it the same way. I do, and sometimes not necessarily actors, but people I know or historical figures, it, which will factor in with this. Yeah, it's not not always actors and actresses. Uh, sometimes it's people I know. Uh, sometimes that's not so much historical figures, but I could see that happening too. Uh, you know, I, I think the, uh, the one that I, I get the biggest kick out of looking back on, and we've discussed this, is uh, as I read the Harry Potter books, I pictured uh, Jafar from Aladdin as as Voldemort. Yeah. So so you know, I'm putting cartoon characters in there with live characters in my brain. So it's a little weird, but. When I read this book, I'm sure I did that, but none of the characters were so well described in the book that I had absolute definitive visions in my mind. I did of, so, of at least one that I can remember clearly. All right, so why, why don't we start with that character? Who who did you have the most clear vision of? Alan Grant, and he described him as a barrel-chested man with a beard. I actually pictured Ernest Hemingway. Hmm, Okay. That's that's not a bad thought, actually. Uh, Sam Neill, I was familiar with Sam Neill from The Omen 3. I'm not sure I ever saw him in anything else. I'd seen him in some miniseries, some ABC miniseries with Angelica Houston about a, a family, but that was the only thing I'd seen him in. Now, he's, he's another one. Now, when I first saw the movie, I thought he was somewhat bland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the years, I've warmed up to his portrayal, uh, partially from just seeing it over and over again on here, and I think partially because he he played it again in Jurassic Park three, and and brought a little bit more, you know, gave me a little bit more substance to the character because I had seen him in the role more now. Uh, but honestly, I think Michael Crichton writes bland human characters. I think that is one of the things he does. Uh, I went on a little bit of a Michael Crichton kick after Jurassic Park, and I read probably five or six of his novels. I went through a similar and, streak, yeah. <laughs> and they all seem to have a similar basic uh, breakdown on them, that they always entail a group of scientists dealing with whatever phenomena 
is presenting itself. It's it's very very rarely one protagonist. In fact, I off offhand I can't think of any book where there's just one protagonist. Disclosure would be an, I mean the post Jurassic Park it would have been Disclosure where he did do okay. something different. But yeah, Andromeda. Yeah, Strain, that, that was Sphere. different. And I forgot that one. Yeah. I read that also, and I didn't. That's the one I didn't like. <laughs> yeah, it was. No, yeah, it was not a great one. But Andromeda Strain Sphere, those are perfect examples. Congo. Congo. I'm trying to think of which other ones I've read. It's been, you know, it's been years, so I don't really have a, a tremendous memory of all of them. But, but they all seem to have that similar breakdown, and the characters become, uh, and Professor Allen will enjoy the use of the word fungible. That they, that they just seem to be all interchangeable. There's nothing about them that makes them particularly necessary for that story. You could take the characters from Congo and put them in Jurassic Park and the book probably would work just as well because the humans aren't really the star of the story. No, they're a vessel. And like you said, it's, they're scientists. Michael Crichton was a very big scientist. He he had worked in the medical field before transferring over to writing. So he brings a lot of that with him in his, in his earlier fiction. There are exceptions, but generally you're right. They're pretty interchangeable. So, you know, like I said, I, Sam Neill, to me, it was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and and like I said, over the time, over time, now I I can't picture anybody else in the role. He he has dominated it in my mind eventually, mm -hmm. but it took some time. Well, he's so different as a protagonist from what you would picture as an action hero, where he's Absolutely. he's quieter, he's you know reserved, and apparently a Harrison Ford was offered the role at one point. Or was was on the tape. Yeah, that would have been interesting. He he strikes me as more, despite the fact that he's supposed to be a brilliant, uh, you know, I guess archaeologist. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he he strikes me as more of an every every man type. He's mm -hmm. not your typical action hero where you feel he is so much more competent than anyone else. No, thankfully that's that's one of his charms. Yes, exactly. I think that's one of the things that works for him. Uh, now, uh, Laura Dern in the movie, uh, again, didn't really, I can't think of anybody specific I had in mind for it, but uh, I thought she did a really nice job. I thought she uh, she fit the role. Uh, she was, you know, the, the love interest for Sam Neill. The one thing I question, and, and I'm going to talk about the actress as well as the character, I I question the choice of who they have coming along on this adventure. When uh, Hammond is picking out who he's going to bring, I understand why he'd bring Sam Neill. Mm -hmm. But I don't understand why he really needed a paleobotanist. He, the way I read it and the way it played out on screen was this was a way to coax Alan Grant. Bring his girlfriend, mm -hmm. that's fine, because he wants Grant on his side. He's there to defend him. Yeah, you would think... Well, we'll just go go down the line a little bit for for the group, and then we'll talk about the logic, because I, I do think there's a lack of logic to to the the exact group we have. But then uh, I think you know the guy who who came in and kind of stole the show, mm -hmm. and I think in the movie is far more memorable than he was in the book is Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, Ian Malcolm. Yes, uh, in the book he's just one of the characters, as far as I was concerned. He didn't really stand out, but in the movie. He really just kind of took over the screen whenever he was on it, and he was likable in an annoying way, <laughs> or he was annoying in a likable way. I don't know how, how you want to phrase it, but he, he was there just to be a, a, a needle in the side of everybody else, and he brought a smile to my face every time he did it. Yeah, but he, he also managed to be the voice of reason, but I'll get into the details on that, but I, I really liked Ian Malcolm. More well, he was also given. Book. He was also yeah, no no question about that. And and like I said, I think he's more memorable in the movie than in the book. Uh, but he also got some of the best lines. I think you know the single best of which was the "Just because you can do it, you never stop to think about if you should do it." Mm -hmm. and, and it just I just thought that was great. And then he's got the you know nature finds a way, uh, or life finds a way rather. Uh, and then the. Rounding out our group is Martin Ferrero as I can't even remember his Gennaro, uh, Gennaro. Gennaro, I believe. Yes, he was very different from what I pictured in the book. Also, uh, I do remember pic picturing him as being a little bit more, a little younger, mm -hmm. a little bit more ready to go on the mission, and just 
even more snivelly than he was in the movie. <laughs> but I think he was more believable as he was presented in the movie. And they got the right actor. I mean, if you saw that character in that actor in Miami Vice, he's he's that same character with legitimacy here. That sort of sniveling, yeah, and, you know, stool pigeon. And and you know, money first. Yeah. So so that's our group that's going out on the adventure. And I guess that's the point where I'm going to just stop going over the cast for a moment. We'll get back to it. But uh, it just seemed to me, okay, now, first of all, we have two, basically two factions within the group, two, two people chosen by each side. The investors chose Gennaro and Malcolm mm-hmm. to go along. Now, why wouldn't the investors choose to have a safety engineer along? And why wouldn't the... Uh, the investors have some sort of animal behaviorist along because they're not going to just defer. (laughs) Yeah. They're not going to defer to Alan Grant on the behavioral thing because he's chosen by Hammond. Well, that, and he's been dealing with theories at best. He's been dealing with dead dinosaurs and the evidence around him. This is a whole other ball game. Yeah. So, so if if you're the investors on this, and obviously this is something where you're investing billions, you're not going to just say, okay, we're going to send a lawyer and this guy with the cockamamie chaos theory, and whatever they tell us, that's good. <laughs> no, not, not you know, that's that's not lawyer. happening. So that that's the you know the one side of the equation. On the other side, I do see where Hammond would choose Alan Grant and Alan Grant only, thinking that once he saw these dinosaurs. He would be so entranced by them, he would be on his side. I could see that, and that's so probably I'm, why he I'm, I'm fine with it on the one side. Yeah, why manipulated them by bringing the grandkids in? Mm-hmm. Oh, look at the kids! And they're happy. They're they're amused. Well, the grandchildren are also there because he, he was totally confident that it was safe, and he thought it was okay to uh, to bring them along. You know, mm-hmm. very Frankenstein. Yeah. Everything's fine until you actually see the the creation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just he he had a certain amount of blinders on about what he was doing, and just expected you know everything to just work out, and that's that's just not the way it works, as Ian Malcolm would tell you every time. And I love that that oh I forgot his name all of a sudden Richard Attenborough. Hammond. Hammond. He's always wearing all white. Malcolm's always wearing all black, and they're they're the two that are clashing. Mm-hmm. A little heavy handed, but I didn't notice it until recently. Well But I don't think you know, I don't think it's I I do think that they're clashing and it's, you know, the yin and the yang and all of that going on, but I don't think it's supposed to mean good and bad. No. In the book, Hammond is more heavy handed bad than he is here. Here he's more just misguided. Yeah, and in the, in I don't the book th- he was pushing it hard because just because he was he was manipulative. He was more manipulative, yes. more overtly manipulative. Exactly. So he he was more of an antagonist in the book. And he's I guess spoilers anybody who hasn't seen this <laughs> in the last uh what is it, twenty five years? Twenty five years, on? yep. Uh so in the book he dies. And he's, that's one of the scenes that I was disappointed not to see, mm-hmm. not because I was rooting for his death in the movie, because he was a more likable character in the movie, but just because I was interested in seeing the, uh, the creatures that killed him. The Procomp Sognathus, the Compies, as, as they're called, yes. which we did get so, in the sequel. Yes, we did. We did eventually get them, but we did not get them here. So that was one of the things I was disappointed at. And as long as we're on that train of thought, I, the biggest thing I was disappointed was that we didn't get the pterodactyls. Yeah, we didn't get any of the river, which, again, we got in a subsequent movie. Yes, we did eventually get it. But well, at this just time, walking yeah, we, away from this one. Yeah. And, and eventually, you know, if, if I can uh, bribe you enough, eventually we'll talk about the sequels. Yeah, you could probably bribe me. <laughs> there, there, but, I, but, there are... Yeah merits to them there are you know none of them are the movie that this is no but there are pluses and minuses to the sequels that we can discuss and uh, i i suspect when we discuss the sequels we may actually have more things to disagree about because i think you know we're both pretty high on this one yeah 
Um, so, you know, the, the character of Hammond, though, like, like we were saying, though, I, I think you described it right, that he was manipulative. He wasn't overtly evil, but he was manipulative, and when he gets killed in the book, you feel he's getting his comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you don't really mourn his passing. Just, Whereas that's, that's it, what you get. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you, you, it's, you know, you play with fire, you get burned. That's really the, the thing. And, and with all the people who are getting killed in the course of the story and with him presented as manipulative and kind of being responsible for those deaths, again, in here, he's more naive in his approach. He's, he thinks that everything is good. So there isn't that same, accountability i don't believe Mm -hmm. uh so if they had killed him off in this you would have felt bad for him in his death yeah whereas whereas the way it played out you know in the in the book you you know you felt he 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 earned it so that that was one of one of the interesting changes uh getting richard attenborough to play the part is was i think was was a pretty much a coup yeah oh yeah do I do think there were other people who were considered for the role, if I remember right. Uh, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page and just working my way down. William Hurt was initially offered Alan Grant, mm. and it says Harren, Harrison Ford was offered it. Yeah. Uh, Jim Carrey auditioned for the role. Oh, no, Jim Carrey auditioned for Ian Malcolm. Oh, that would have been decent. Well, maybe. That was a different Jim Carrey than we get now. Yeah, oh yeah, it would have definitely been different. But I'm, I'm also then, glad Harrison Ford didn't get it because then instead of because you know Sam Neill wasn't well known enough at the time, so he was mm-hmm. able to define that. Like you didn't see Sam Neill as this character; you just saw that's Alan Grant and Laura right. Dern. Yeah, I yeah. mean, most of the cast was they weren't unknown; they were well traveled actors, but not household names. Well, I, I, Laura Dern, according to this, was Spielberg's first choice for the role. Mm-hmm. But uh, Robin Wright was offered it first. No, she wouldn't have been bad. But I think Dern brings a natural feeling to that character. Because she'll do little things in the background, uh, little Mm -hmm. reactions. She's in the scene at all times. And it feels natural, kind of like Goldblum. That sort of, it sounds like the words are coming right out of his mouth as he's thinking of them. She brings that same spontaneity. And and she's, you know, she's got a down and dirty quality to her. Mm Sticking her arms into the giant stegosaurus poop. <laughs> so there's something about her willingness to do that that makes you think, you know, wow, yeah. she's 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 pretty tough. Uh, yeah, I don't see anything where they had the other people who were considered for the role of Hammond, but I do remember hearing at some point that there were other people considered. Anyway, uh, moving down the list, the next guy who comes to mind for me is Samuel Jackson. Uh, who's, I don't know why I, I do remember not having any image of him being an African American when I read the book. I don't remember if they don't say that or if I just didn't remember it. Not that that's significant because I thought he played the part well. Yeah, he was great. Now the character that he played was much more minor in the book and Dr. Wu was a bigger piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So well, Dr. Wu eventually, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> he, he, yeah, he he was more relevant. I mean, spoiler in the book, Doctor Wu doesn't make it out of the first book. Let's see, see him go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, we also have Newman. Oh man, was he perfect for that part? He was exactly what I pictured. He was also Steven Spielberg's first choice. He said. Uh, I, I just I love the scene. It's that's one one of the things you know we t- we talked uh, one of Scott Gardner's criteria when he rates these movies is quotability. Oh yeah. And I started thinking about this one. I was thinking, how quotable is this? And then the more I think about it, the more uh, the more it is. Well, you got Dotson. Uh, Dotson, we yeah, got Dotson, Dotson here. here. <laughs> Don't get cheap on me now, Dotson. Uh, there's just there are a lot of little things. I, I just love his enthusiasm when he's showing him the shaving kit. <laughs> It's just he's great in that part, and he's he's appropriately acerbic when he's talking to his coworkers. He's he is not what I pictured when I read the book. Once again, uh, I pictured I, like I said, pretty much I pictured much more generic people in all of these roles. Mm. Every, everybody was Sam Neill, pretty much. <laughs> uh, 
but you know, he he just did so well with it. And then we have the kids. I think there's a, well, who's uh, which is the actor that played the uh, game warden? Uh, Robert Muldoon. Wait, that's the yeah. character. Yeah, Muldoon is the character, but I don't, I'm not sure who Bob played Beck. it. But he, he, he was really well in the, really good in the role. Also, yeah, uh, I, I felt like he was, uh, you know, just perfectly cast, and uh, he seemed totally competent. You would have thought that the investors would have sent somebody of his ilk on yeah. the trip, or at least gotten his input. Yeah, if if, if they had shown him to be hired by the investors to do what he does and kind of at odds with Hammond. I mean, he was a little bit at odds with Hammond, but it was more of a friendly, you know, like his, his, uh, he comes out, you know, they should all be destroyed, but you don't, you know, he realizes they should, but you don't think he really wants them to be. Well, no, or at least that's the feeling I had. Yeah. I mean, maybe the velociraptors, but there's reasons for that. Clever girl. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he he seems extremely competent, and he does not end up putting up that much of a fight when he goes out, which I think serves to show how you know, how serious these creatures are mm-hmm. or, or what a serious threat they are, because he's never shown to be incompetent in any way, and yet he's taken out fairly, fairly easily, ultimately. Yeah. Man, that scene's intense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, on, on both ends of it. His end and uh, Ellie's end running into the compound and all. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the last people to consider are the two kids. Uh. And, yeah. <laughs> they're they're but, kids. That's what they, you know, they, they, they do have some moments to their performances, but for the most part, the they're The biggest there. problem... The biggest problem I have with them is they are both a little bit too much of the check the boxes characters. Mm-hmm. She's got to be the computer hacker expert. He's, you know, the kid who read uh, Alan Grant's book and knows every word of it backwards and forwards. This, you know, the, the, their part was written just a little bit too, too close for me. But other than that, it's. Uh, you know, they, they will find they serve the purpose. You know, you have the story arc with Alan Grant starting off, you know, how he hates kids and all. And then, you know, working it up to the point where, like, at the end, uh, they're on the helicopter and the two of them are, like, cuddling up against him as they're flying away. Which is exclusive to the movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe adds a little bit to it, to the story. It, it adds a little bit of a subtext to, to his whole journey with them. Which, you know, it's... It, it's nice to have that, and that's that's also a Steven Spielbergian thing too mm. to to have the kids involved that way. Now, talking about the directing a little bit, or just the way the story goes, uh, you know, in rewatching it to to do this today, uh, as if I needed to rewatch it, but uh, I was I was looking at like the opening scene and the way you know that that uh, plays out with the you know where they're putting the raptor into the pen and. It the guy badly. gets pulled away. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, on the one hand, I can't imagine that they would do that without having enough weaponry to put this thing down if they needed to. But on the other hand, it sets up a level of intensity again right out of the, right out of the shoot. All we see is the creature's eye, mm-hmm. so we're not really revealed anything much of, of the dinosaurs yet. Which which I think is is good, and I think you know, I th- I think there's a lot of the way Spielberg did this, that is almost in contrast to itself. One, he learned a lot from how he did Jaws, but two, he didn't want to remake Jaws. Yeah. So it had to be done differently, taking some of the strengths from that movie, but then doing other things different. Well, with uh, this, there was one, intent one, to do that. With Jaws, it was just bad technology. Yeah, but I think the, the one thing he did take was to you know just show us little by little until we finally saw the whole dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and he did it really really well because as i said if i'm watching tv and i'm flipping through the channels and this is on there is never the feeling of oh well you know we're not up to the point where the dinosaurs are there yet so i don't care that never happens 
I'm, you know, whatever part it's up to, that's fine. I could join right in. Yeah. If it's the opening or if it's them in the Badlands, if them if they're arriving, pretty much, yeah, exactly as you say, I will stop and watch. Now, in the Badlands, Alan Grant's a little bit of a prick when he's talking to the <laughs> yeah, kids. Now, the kid's annoying, no no question about it. I, I, I don't mind that the kid got his comeuppance, but it's kind of a dicky <laughs> move. <laughs> he starts taking the claw and putting it across the kid's stomach, you know, as if he's going to rip it open. Uh, but it, show, it also shows, you know, his, his dislike for young people. That and I love the Badlands scene because it's one of the strengths of Steven Spielberg's directing is any movie you see, they you feel like the characters do live in that environment. There's little things from the houses in E.T., even to uh, like Minority Report. You feel like the environment is a real place, and the Badlands and the trailer all look real. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, kind and, of allows you to, to ease into the movie. And he did use what was at that time state-of-the-art technology and, you know, what they were doing with shooting the thing down that would mm-hmm. let them see the skeleton before they dug it up. But you go under the tent and, the, you know, the computer's got that cardboard covering on it. And it's like, oh, okay, I can, I would see that at, you know, maybe my, my high school uh, AV yeah. area. And he touched the screen and it yeah. all went like wonky. It's little things like that. That's one of the two key pieces of a Spielberg movie. Pacing is the other. Yes. And, and yeah, I, that's, I think that's part of what, what I, I was getting at earlier is that it's so well paced that you don't feel like, okay, this is the slow part. I'm not going to watch this. Hmm. And when, you know, this, this same movie under less deft hands would definitely have that until the point where the dinosaurs start to get, you know, out. Yeah. I mean, if you take the basic elevator pitch premise of Jurassic Park, it shouldn't work. It, it sounds goofy to say, well, they reinvent dinosaurs and it, and it chases people around this park. Crichton and Spielberg managed to make this thing work really well. Now, I do question the science, and I would be interested in hearing somebody, uh, you know, somebody who actually knows about such things, you know, maybe Blaine, uh, you know, as far as the getting the mosquito and being able to get the DNA from the blood within the mosquito. Now, one thing to me is is clear, though, is that it's just a little too coincidental that, you know, they get the mosquito and they know it's bitten a dinosaur. Yeah. First of all, you know, have you even aged this thing to know how long it's been in the, uh, in, in, in the, what's, in the, the whatever, the amber. Thank you. I mean, that's yeah. one of those leaps in logic that I think it worked a little bit better in the book than it did in the movie because they, they are abbreviating a lot of the science. Yeah. Well, and I think you have to. And I like the way they, they exposit the science. With the ride, with the, <laughs> the, the, the multiple Hammonds, Mr. DNA. Yeah. Dinosaurs. Yeah, I, I thought that was really well done and, and very, uh, you know, very immersive. You, you almost feel like you're riding through and, and watching this thing. Well, you're, I'm always surprised that that's not a ride at Universal. Because they do actually have the Visitor Center. And it's pretty mm-hmm. well recreated there, by the way. Yes. And and that's that's a fun ride. The, you know, it's, basically it's, you know, the log flume with dinosaurs, but it's a fun ride. We also enjoyed the Velociraptor. Uh, oh, the encounter. That's more intimidating yeah. than you would, than you would think. Because <laughs> somehow you, you, you know, even knowing it's not real, you start thinking, is that thing real? <laughs> yeah. It starts brushing past your cheek. Yeah. It, it manages to take that intimidation factor and put it into a really fun experience. Yeah. That was, uh, but back to the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like they also created, you know, as you said, you know, it feels real. Jurassic Park itself mm-hmm. feels real. Well, you see them in the dining room. They have, I mean, they have plates monogrammed. They have actual merchandise. And you see the projections of Jurassic Park, Tennessee and things of that nature. And it, it, it actually shows the progressive rate of the growth of the park. Mm-hmm. And, and even, you know, the... the the natural touches, the you know, the jeeps with the with the insignia on them, mm-hmm. the the King Kong doors. Yes, everything about it is just you know really put together in a way where you're like, well, if there was a Jurassic Park, this is what it would look like. Yeah. And then you know when they're going through the ride, or when they start going on the tour, and the dinosaurs aren't cooperating. <laughs> I've had that day at the zoo. 
Yes, I, I think I think we all have at least with certain exhibits. And you know, Malcolm's got to be a wise ass. You know, will you actually have dinosaurs on your dinosaur ride? Uh, I've actually had that bite me because my my wife and I, Holly, she's been on the show. We were on a train tour for my birthday a few years ago, and the train is a dinner train, very nice, and it's taking you through rural parts of Arkansas. And there was this little fenced in area, and I decided to go full Malcolm and say the line. About that time, a branch scrapes along the side of the window, so I turned ghostly white. Because <laughs> I picture raptors. So that movie has a long-lasting effect, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, well, that's, that's like the raptor encounter. You know they're not real, yeah. but they're still kind of scary. But the no-shows actually set up the anticipation. You're, it's one of the most genius things, and I didn't really, until I'm watching it with the critical mind, didn't register it as much as I had before where, oh, Dilophosaurus isn't there. Oh, T-Rex isn't there. But you're expecting it. Mm-hmm. And, and if it you've read the book, you want to see them more. Yeah, and if you've read the book, you know what's coming. I remember sitting in the theater with the, the, like a knot in the pit of my stomach, dreading the T Rex scene. Well, and I couldn't wait for it. Now, you know, I have to admit, and I've said this many times as the sequels have come out, you put big dinosaurs on the screen, you don't even really need a story to get me. Totally on board. I, you know, you put them, big dinosaurs on the screen fighting. I'm gonna turn into a seven year old while I'm watching it. King Kong, it, good example. Yeah, pretty much. And the only time I'm disappointed is when we have a movie like that and we don't get enough of the creatures. And in this one, I think we had the perfect balance. I think you know he held them back. He held them back. He'd give us a little taste, then he'd hold them back again. And I, I thought he did perfectly, you know, again, the pacing. He, he brought them in at a great pace to the point where it just kept building and building. You know, he gave us the uh, Brachiosauruses. Mm-hmm. Beautifully that's shot. another great scene. Yeah, beautifully shot. The score is just awesome at that point. I've been listening to it preparing for this, and I forgot how good and how nuanced that score is. And it, it's, I mean, it's John Williams. You can't go wrong with John Williams. But like every other musical genius... He's got his ups and downs. Not everything is the absolute best, although he has a hell of a lot of absolute best on his resume. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, and this this is one. Of, I think this is one of his best scores personally. Oh, yeah. And like you said, it's 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 just the whole thing. When when you actually try to listen to it during the movie, you can feel how it changes the mood going along, and how how you know it's it's grandiose when it needs to be. It's memorable. Without, without taking over the screen, which I always feel is important as well. And I think I've grown to love the quiet moments as much as the big, you know, rousing score. Just the quiet moments, like they're talking, you know, Ellie and Hammond talking later in the movie, and it's just a light, you know, bell sound doing the tone. Mm-hmm. That's that's somehow stuck with me longer than the big, you know, rousing moment when they arrive. Dun, dun, oh no, the, rous- dun, 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 the rousing dun. moment is is still it for me. But but I can understand if you're sitting at home listening to it. If you put it on without the movie, I can understand where the smaller moments might actually be even better. Mm-hmm. And just a so, comment, I mean, just because it just popped into my head, they re-released Jurassic Park in IMAX 3D in 2013 for the 20th anniversary. A, I went. And I was buying popcorn and mentioning to somebody, hey, I saw it, you know, when it came out here. When I, when I was a teenager and the girl behind the counter says, I'm, I was two. <laughs> Just that, that ineffectual. So you could hear me wailing through the movie. But B, this movie looked startlingly great in 3D. I mean. I've heard, I've heard that this was one of the better ones where it was, where there was a conversion to 3D. Mm-hmm. I'm not a 3D fan as a general rule. But I could, uh. I could see where where it might uh you know it might be one of the few that would pull me in. Yeah. Plus unlike mo- again different directors you'd see a different movie. Uh I think we have a lot of scenes here where despite the tenseness and the uh you know the anxiety that it's building they're still pretty bright. This isn't a dark movie. And I think dark movies are more difficult in 3D. Yeah. Now, this had great moments where, you know, I was, I, 
brushing it, think, get, trying to get the person in front of me out of the way and realized, oh, that's on the screen. <laughs> and now just, just thinking about the story a little bit. Uh, and I, I said some, you know, I said earlier about, I don't know about the science. He, he set it up that they had to fix the gaps in the DNA using bullfrogs. Mm-hmm. With this level of scientific advancement and work, wouldn't someone be aware that bullfrogs can actually change their sex in a single-sex environment? You would think. But again, that's, it comes down to hubris. That's, that was Hammond's failing. It's, it's that whole Frankenstein mentality that in hubris we supplanted God – Metaphorically, literally, however you want to choose it, and it comes back to bite us all, and it proves Malcolm exactly right because you did, yeah, you would think somebody would know that. And you know, again, we don't want to talk much about sequels, but I love how we just keep making the same mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> again and again and again. And it's not something that you wouldn't believe. <laughs> you know, I could see in in light of the potential for profit here where people would make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Well, it comes down to humanity being flawed. You have Nedry who, whatever his financial situation was, we weren't clarified, but we know it's there makes a really bad call. And that starts the whole domino effect. All it takes is one little human infraction and nature will take over. That's pretty much well, the theme for all the whole series. Yeah, but you know, but Hammond also made a mistake in allowing Nedry the access to what he had and setting. You know, he, Ned, Nedry is you know clearly a uh, self-centered egotist mm-hmm. who who is blaming Hammond for his own created problems, but Hammond is putting his own standards onto Nedry, saying, you know, I, I what is it? I, I don't blame you for your mistakes, but I do require that you uh you pay for you them. know handle yeah, you pay for them, whatever. That's assuming Nedry's gonna allow that to happen. And it's not his father. <laughs> you know, he, he can say, No, I'm I'm not gonna deal with this this way. And that's what happened. He 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 put Nedry in a position to be angry at him even if it was wrong. But then when he got angry, he had enough power to act on that anger. Hmm. Because, once again, ego. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think Hammond just pictured himself as, you know, the the fatherly, grandfatherly person that no one was going to double-cross. And yet. And, <laughs> and, and they, yet there's Nedry. And it's almost surprising there weren't more potential... Uh, you know, Nedry types in, in the story. Well, I love the, I mean, we talk about ego, even late in the movie, when they're in the bunker, Hammond's saying, oh, this is nothing. When when Disneyland opened, nothing worked. And Mal- Malcolm points out that, hey, Pirates of the Caribbean didn't eat the customers. <laughs> so even up until the latter part of this movie, Hammond was still thinking this was going to happen. This is just a minor setback. That's how much ego, that's how ingrained it was in him. And it's not that he was being nefarious, he was just, he saw stars and you get that, you know, communicated when he talks about his little flea circus, that he's always been a dreamer and he got deluded by his own dream and his own power to make that dream happen. He actually ends up being a somewhat tragic figure in, in the movie, not so much in the book. Yeah. That's what we were talking about before where, you know, in, in, in the, in the movie, he has good intents or good intent. Uh, but you know, just the same, you know, it comes back to, to bite him and it comes back to bite a lot of people. Literally. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now going into the book, I was not really familiar, you know, with Velociraptors. I had heard of them before with the book. I'm sure heck, as heck aware of them now. Well, I love that they were the hidden enemy. Because in most previews at the time, you saw the the T-Rex. And, of course, the T-Rex scene is marvelous. But it's like Spielberg kept his best card towards the end. Because the dinosaurs you're scared of aren't the big bad ones. It's these little sleek bastards that will tear you apart. And they're smart. And, and, yeah, and I think that's the part of it where they, you know, and and I guess we have to credit Crichton with this, not Mm -hmm. so much Spielberg. But he created this believable intelligence level in them 
where they become truly frightening because not only are they fierce and bloodthirsty, <laughs> but they also outthink you and set you up. Yeah. Which is, you know, what happens to uh, Muldoon. And you know, like you said, he was competent. You know, he knew what he was dealing with and they still got him. Whew. <laughs> they ended up being the, one of the more memorable pieces of the movie. That's for sure. Just the oh, way absolutely. they move. They were, I mean, they're beautiful creatures in their own way, but they're scary as hell. And then, uh, the Tyrannosaurus scene. Ooh, yeah, I definitely want to talk is about one, that. Yeah, it's one of the most memorable and well done scenes. Uh, I, I think, you know, the, it's, it's amazing how they could have such an intense scene and then they just make you laugh in the middle of it a little bit with, you know, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. <laughs> uh, well, when but, you gotta you go, know, you gotta go. <laughs> but the, you know, the, the, T-Rex chasing the car and catching up to it, you know, barely being able to keep him, you know, away from it, even though you're flooring the car, was kind of eye-opening and frightening. And then just the scene where he's flipping the car over and, uh, you know, he, he goes, you know, what's his name? Uh, Gennaro goes into the bathroom, <laughs> sits on the toilet, and T-Rex just rips the bathroom apart and eats him. Uh the, you know, just just really well done stuff. The whole T Rex setup, and and the subsequent attack on on the jeeps is probably one of the one of the most memorable pieces of cinema. Because it's set up early on with the goat, and then suddenly you know they the, the way they set it up in this part is where did they stop? And suddenly you just see they're outside the goat. It's pouring rain. There's no music in this scene, but the whole thundering of you know the thumping. Where they had to use the actual guitar string to get the the water to ripple right. The whole but then the wa the water rippling and just you know you're really not seeing anything else going on and you just see the water rippling and you know what's yeah. coming. And then the it's, it's leg. very well done. And it took me a long time. It was actually this most recent viewing when I finally figured out how the setup was because the, you know a lot of people are like, how did they fall into the moat that wasn't there if the if the goat was level with them? And I figured out okay, there's a little bit of a plateau for that goat to come out. Because when you first see the T-Rex, when his head comes up, he's he's about eye level with the car. So he's climbed out of that moat, broken the fence. And, of course, you see the little wires. Choom, choom, choom. Oh, man, that was great. And <laughs> no music. The rain is allowed to be the loudest noise as far as background. So it feels absolutely real and tangible. And again, pacing. This scene was paced. It wasn't a quick scene. It wasn't a one and done. It was allowed to breathe and let you really anticipate what's about to happen. It was it was marvelous. And of course, the the biggest scene stealer was the eye dilating on the T Rex, which is still phenomenal. The special effects mm -hmm. in this movie still hold up, even up even over subsequent movies in the series. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh... They're they're either better than or the equal of the other ones. I don't think I don't think there's any one that totally outdid this. Although no. I I would make an argument that possibly the first Jurassic World did a little bit more with the uh, with the creatures, including the giant. I don't even know what it's called, the giant water creature that jumps up and yeah, you know. But we'll get to that in, in due time. But it, it certainly. Uh, you know, they they put a lot of care and effort into getting the special effects as good as they could for the time that they put this out. And because of that, they hold up really well. There's no real, uh, no real, you know, weaknesses that we can see, or at least that I could see. Which is amazing because this was really the first outing of the flesh and bone creatures made from CGI. Well, before this, unless I'm mistaken on the time period, and I'm, I don't think I am, before this, the most impressive uh, CGI movie was T2. You're absolutely correct, yeah, and that's what inspired this. And nobody thought that, that computers could do that, and yet they showed them this test, and somebody actually made the line, that made it in the movie that said, oh, I'm out of a job, don't you mean extinct? <laughs> that was That was said to somebody who does practical effects. Well, I think practical effects have made something of a comeback over the last few years anyway. And they, they were very handy here. For some of the, the close-ups, having a, a tangible T-Rex or a, you know, a model uh, Velociraptor helps immensely. But for some of those shots where the Velociraptor is leaping onto the kitchen 
um, counter and things of that nature, the CG really comes in handy as well. It was a good yeah, we balance. Should, we should talk a little bit about that scene because that's another one where he just ramped up the uh, suspense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's points in it. This it's may, Maybe one of the few things I can point to that's a slight weakness in the way the film is done is it seems to be inconsistent as far as the speed of the velociraptors because at some points they're incredibly fast and they're just on their prey before you can like blink. Mm-hmm. And then there's other points where like Timmy's got a uh, bum leg and he's running away and he manages to get through a doorway and close a door before they get to him. Yeah. Not by much though. But then it also comes down to the, the Raptor not knowing how to walk on ice because they put him in a freezer. Mm-hmm. But man, that scene, because they, they set it up so well. It's like, well, they're fine unless they figure out how to open doors. And suddenly you see the kitchen door start turning. Yeah, you see the handle. It's, it's again, another Spielberg-type touch. And it's so quiet until, I mean, it's every time I've seen it in the theater, that scene where the, the, snot, the, the snout shows up in the kitchen porthole and you oh, know, and, does that exhale. fogs it up. Yep. It makes me jump out of my seat. <laughs> uh, any other scenes or characters that you think we should... Uh give some attention to let's see we've hit some of the major ones um those are the main ones i mean i like hammond and and ian in the bunker bickering back and forth as they're trying to guide ellie Mm -hmm. (laughs) and man i don't know if laura Dern ages i I really don't she looks the same in this movie as she did in the last jedi practically yeah. yeah 25 years or 24 yeah they set that up really well with her going into the bunker and you actually start, and they take their time turning on all the switches for the electricity, which of course corresponds with uh, Tim on the fence. But mm-hmm. they they make that so intense, and then suddenly you feel relaxed. And she's like, "Oh, we did it!" That's when the raptor jumps out. That's the first time you fully see the raptor. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about the fence scene. That that's when Alan Grant finally has his moment where he is a father figure to these children. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the combination of the, the two things, when they're in the tree with the uh, Brachiosaurus, and then uh, when he when he pretends to be electrocuted. <laughs> Which still cracks me up. But yeah, he's he's learned to take the stick out of, you know, where. Although, why would he throw it? Why would a scientist throw a wooden stick against an electric fence? Yeah. That's, that, they even bother me. I might, I, might as well, I might as well shoot a rubber band at it. Yeah. <laughs> But I think we've hit some of the major ones. I mean, the pacing is, is marvelous. The special effects were state-of-the-art and still hold up. And, and what would be a ridiculous premise is actually given levity. Like you said, the park looks real. There's a lot of thought into what this place would really look like. And the characters are distinctive, unlike in the book. Now, I said I was disappointed with the movie as compared to the book when I first saw it. And that was primarily because what we talked about, that there were certain things that happened in the book that didn't happen in the movie. Mm-hmm. But having had a chance to step back and kind of gloss over that, what they did do was tremendous. Well, and the movie is, I think, right around the two-hour mark, one hour and two hours and seven minutes. So to add in those other scenes, you know, you're making this into probably a two-hour and 40-minute movie, which in today's market I think would fly. But 25 years ago, I think, you know, you needed – to make it a little bit more uh, streamlined. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned one thing, and I'm glad you said that. There's the final scene, the final climax, where the, they're cornered by the raptors. Now, it was originally going to end with, with the statues or the, the bones falling on them and, and smashing the raptors. Out of nowhere, there's the T-Rex. A, it doesn't make sense, because how does the T-Rex get in there? But B, I was surprised and pleasantly so when I saw it in the theater, because it was not mm-hmm. something that was in the book. I like that a lot better than the bones falling on yeah. them. Yeah. And that's how it played out in the Genesis game. That's right. Played the Sega Genesis game back in the day. <laughs> that was how immersed I was. I had the models. I had the action figures. I had the lunchbox. The alarm clock. <laughs> so where does it fall on the Jaws scale, though? Uh, you may be shocked to hear this, but it is Jaws. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. And it's almost surprising based upon my original walking out of the theater thoughts that I would put it that high. But yeah, there's, I, I can come up with 
really no serious flaws in this movie. Uh, thinking about, you know, issues is, you know, maybe the science is a little wonky and not totally accurate, but it's got explanations for everything, whether or not they are true or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm willing to, to give it that. Uh, and then the other weakness that I had was, again, that they didn't do certain things that were in the book, but I'm not supposed to be rating the movie based on the comparison to the book. I'm supposed to be rating the movie on the movie. Yeah. And this movie is virtually flawless. And, and having seen it, I, I don't know, 15 times, because we had discount theaters back in the 90s, and it was re-released as well. I can tell you every theatrical experience was equally as good. There were no diminished returns in seeing it theatrically multiple times. Yeah, this is one that I would like to get a Fathom Events uh, viewing and and get to see it a second time in the theaters because I think uh, I would enjoy it probably more than I did the first time. Mm -hmm. I did when it was in IMAX. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. I know it is coming. Uh, Probably would have come by the time this came out, but keep an eye out if if you're a time traveler, I guess. (laughs) So that'll do it for Jurassic Park. Now, next time you hear from David, it's going to probably either be Harry Potter or it'll be The Lost World. I'm going to give you a slight spoiler and tell you The Lost World is not yours. Yeah. But where where does it beyond that? (laughs) You know what? Where it falls beyond that, I'm going to have to view it again to determine. You'll have to make that decision. Because I've never watched it with the critic's eye. I've just watched it as a viewer in the past. So... I'll decide whether it's Jaws 2, 3, or 4. Pretty confident it's not 4. So I'll decide whether it's Jaws 2 or 3 when I watch it again for that podcast. Same here. I really don't know where it will fall. All right. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Well, thanks I for having me. appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And you have a new venture in the podcasting world that we were talking about earlier. Why don't you tell everybody about that? I don't know if it'll be out by the time this releases, but I am working on a secret project with multiple podcasters that involves a superhero of great renown. Something to look forward to, everybody. And at some point it will be pimped on the uh, the Is It Yours uh, Facebook page. Yes, it will. And everywhere else I can pimp it. (laughs) There you go. All right. Thank you again, Dave. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, I could use some iTunes reviews, and I could use email at jawspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody, and see you next time. None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take, and then other rides will come online six or 12 months after that. Absolutely spectacular design. Spared no expense. And we can charge anything we want, 2000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. And then there's the merchandise. Donald, Donald, this park was not built to cater only for the super rich. Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. Sure, they will. What, we'll have a a coupon day or something? (laughs) (laughs) Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, I know. They're a lot worse. Now, wait a second. Now, we haven't even seen the part where Donald, 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 let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear a review part. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling <laughs> generalizations. <laughs> if I may. Um... I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it? Well. I I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. If I wish to could no no, if I wish to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this isn't some species that was obliterated by deforestation 
or, or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and, and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Well, the question is, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem? And therefore, how could you ever assume that you can control it? When you have plants in this building that are poisonous, you pick them because they look good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. Dr. Grant, if there's one person here who could appreciate what I'm trying to do, the world has just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>